Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right. um, I've made two arguments in the past two weeks. The church fell, or at least a portion of the church fell with Augustine. That was two weeks ago. Then I argued that the Restoration Movement, our churches, restored the peace and, you know, the whole movement of restoring early church Christianity partly succeeded and then it too fell. That is that there was a giving up of the nonviolent peace that Campbell and Stone and Lipscomb all believed in. And this is a story that repeats itself again and again. Churches rediscover the peace of Christ and then lose it. Isaiah says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Philippians 4, 6-7 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Isaiah tells us to trust in God, to keep our mind on God. He is the one who provides security and peace. Philippians tells us to not be anxious, but to trust in God. And both passages then emphasize this is true peace. And so the history of the church can be told as a process which starts with peace. Nonviolent peace is central, and then it's lost or it's relinquished. This is the historical reality of the church, not just in its first 400 years, but often repeated wherever there has been an attempt to restore New Testament Christianity. And so people, the pattern is people go back, they return, you know, they begin to read scripture for themselves. They say, oh, peace and trust in God, the teachings of Jesus, that becomes central. And so there's an initial acceptance of this teaching and an attempt to live up to this reality. And then a gradual loss of this commitment. And this can be demonstrated, as I showed last week with the Restoration Movement, But actually, there are a host of restoration movements in which restoration of the original church and the authentic teaching of Jesus entails focus on peace, on nonviolent peace, and then a weakening of this commitment. So if the Constantinian shift and the acceptance of violence is the fall of the church, and that's the way it's often depicted, Maybe the church has fallen many times. Everyone knows peace is there in the Bible, but maybe some people are just savvy enough, world-wise enough, as we were talking today. Maybe they're the ones that they just stay silent. Say, well, we probably better not bring that up. And they've just concluded, well, violence is just inevitable. 
which explains when and where there are renewals of commitment to peace, to the gospel, the fullness of the gospel. That pacifism arises where people are trying to be Christian and in some way they throw off their past. They're not so rooted in history that they can't read the Bible again for themselves. And this happens on the North American frontier again and again. It's a proof of the case that wherever there is a frontier culture, wherever there is a fresh reading of scripture, there is a conclusion that pacifism is central to the gospel and then a commitment to live in peace. So there's no particular hermeneutic or you know secret that's rediscovered, but simply an opening, a renewal. I don't know about you, but I didn't know anything when I became a Christian and nobody had taught me and I just got the Bible out and I started reading it and I thought, oh, well, we're not supposed to do the, the whole violence. And I just thought that's what the Bible said. And then I went to Bible college and seminary and I learned better. You know, you get sophisticated. And one learns that a kind of, I think, false understanding. What is clear though, that, and it just demonstrates itself again and again, is that where we start fresh, we just start with the words of Jesus, the presumption is that violence and war are not part of the authentic Christian life. In North America, this was a conclusion of a variety of groups. Pietism, Pentecostalism, Revivalism, on the edges of the frontier, fostered a confident approach. Many people began to read the biblical text for themselves. And there's actually just a rediscovery, I think, of the peace of the gospel. There's a mass rediscovery, not just among churches, but almost culture-wide. There was peace movements, peace societies, peace churches, utopian communities. So much so that Ralph Waldo Emerson forecasts that war is on its last legs. A universal peace is as sure as is the prevalence of civilization over barbarism, of liberal governments over feudal forms. The question for us is only how soon? And he said this in the 1830s, of course, then the Civil War, then the Mexican-American War. But starting, we'll start early. Let's start in the 20th century with the Pentecostals. And then I'll work my way backward. I'll just make a statement. The groups that were indigenous, the church groups that were indigenous to the United States, they find peace. I can't find an example of any group that started out that was not teaching pacifism. And they all abandoned it. It's kind of shocking. They initially embraced this doctrine. You know, in the first generation, it became just directly and simply pacifist. This is what John Howard Yoder says. And for the simple reason that the adherents took the Bible straight. They said, well, this is what the Bible said. No complication. That's just what it says. I went and visited the Assemblies of God website. And I think we have two Assemblies of God actually in, in town here. And as a boy, I went to, I, I sometimes attended the Assemblies of God. This is what it says. Peacemakers who sow in peace 
reap a harvest of righteousness. That's at the very top. And the Assemblies of God considers peacemaking to be intrinsic to the church's mission. Sounds pretty good. And there was a strong sense of being against the world in this church. And it was a pacifist church, the Assemblies of God, when it began. And when I attended, they were very against the world, but what the world was, it wasn't anything complicated like American nationalism. I remember we had a Filipino missionary come to the church, and he was a missionary to the headhunters. And he told these exciting stories about the demons. The heads would be there, and he, the, the heads would start talking to him. I, I was 16. I, this was great stuff. You know, I never heard this. And we spent a lot of time in the church casting out the demons. It was a kind of a simple idea. So there was this idea of exorcism. I remember he gave me his name card. I wish I'd kept it. And on the card it listed all of his spiritual gifts. He had the gift of exorcism. He had the gift of discernment. He could read the spirits. And so in that church, the demons were always hovering nearby. And the reigniting of the gift of the Holy Spirit, they think of it as a re-beginning of the church. There's the first Pentecost, and then there's the Pentecost in the United States. And what happened in between, it really doesn't matter. The church fell, and now we found it again. Before you laugh too hard, that sounds a little bit like our churches, because we sort of say, well, the church started in 33 A.D., and everything that happened up until the church is restored again in the United States with the Restoration Movement, well, it doesn't really matter. And so history, theology, church structure are of little importance in the Assemblies of God, just the movement of the Spirit. But they were a peace church, and they lost it. And this is my, you know, why? Because part of it, upward mobility, Donald McGavern's church growth theory, they began to apply it so that Pentecostal churches are like other evangelical churches. Actually, Pentecostal churches, when they began in the United States, they were fully integrated. The blacks and whites were worshiping together. It was one of the only movements in the country. And the interesting thing is, it's reversed itself for the most part. What was formerly integrated is now largely segregated. It marks the demise, I think, of the general commitment. On the website, there is a strong commitment to peace, but then you get down to the bottom and then they qualify it. They say, yes, but. And it kind of reflects the history that they began to offer seminary degrees because they wanted their preachers to be chaplains in the army. And they had to have a three-year degree, a graduate degree. And then in 1967, I think it may be one of the only churches that it began with a creed that says, we are a peace church. In 1967, they said, we're not anymore. They changed the creed. Methodism, same thing. You can follow. I'm just going to tell the same story happens with every group. It just happens again and again. There's a similar pattern in Methodism. A strong pacifist stance. And if you go to the United Methodist website, it then gives a proviso. Oh, 
Now, we're pacifists, but... And in many ways, of course, I think Methodism is kind of the predominant cultural influence on the American frontier. The great revivalist was Dwight L. Moody. Did you know Dwight L. Moody was a pacifist? Most people don't know that. And Moody's description of himself, I think, would fit early American Methodism. He came later. He says, there has never been a time in my life when I felt that I could take a gun and shoot down a fellow human being. In this, I am a Quaker. There's many restoration churches. The churches of God was pacifist. And they have camp meetings, as I understand it. It's non-denominational. And they began, I, let me read the pacifist stance at the beginning of the church. She, the church, believes that all civil wars are unholy and sinful, and in which the saints of the Most High ought never to participate. Pretty strong. And this stance lasts through the Mexican War, the American Civil War, but by World War I, they began to change it, and they had relinquished, very much like the Restoration Movement. Seventh-day Adventists, they were strongly pacifist. They maintained pacifism even through the Second World War, through the Korean War, but now they've changed up so that they allow their members full participation in the military. Now that's a quick survey, and my conclusion in this brief survey is that no peace church within the United States with its roots in the United States has maintained its peace stance. And so I want to ask why? And of course, the, what I'm not talking about is the traditional Anabaptist groups, the Brethren, the Quakers, the Mennonites. Due to their long history and persecution, you know, they've been faithful to pacifism, mostly. Their rootedness in history, the example, they have pacifist martyrs that they talk about. And they have a very distinctive culture. I've attended uh, a couple of Mennonite churches. Faith and I visited their seminary. And it has a very distinctive mission and culture to it. And there is a sense among them of a kind of long-suffering patience. The church and world distinction. That it's played a key role. Now I'm not saying these groups don't have their problems. I'm just talking about this one thing. I think you could say the same thing about the various brethren groups. That the peace of God, Isaiah says, trusting in God for peace has survived. I want to suggest that we can trace the loss of peace to a very specific cause. And it's not just that the church has become violent. In other words, that seems to be subsequent with Christians participating in war and even saying that acts of violence are, are acceptable. But what happens also, they come to believe God is violent. That is, the view of God changes. And that's the great tragedy with this. Many Christians assume that God the Father needed to vent his wrath toward Jesus by killing him so that he wouldn't need to vent his wrath against us. This is a common doctrine that you hear in churches. But of course, it's a very late development of the 17th century. This is one version of what's called penal substitutionary view of atonement. 
And this is an understanding that did not exist for the first 1100 years of the church and which begins to develop as the church compromises with violence. We have Constantine and then the atonement theory is gradually changed up. And in this view, you know, it restricts salvation to Jesus' death on the cross, thereby rendering the rest of his life and ministry superfluous in terms of the way Jesus reconciles us to God. Jesus, as the example to follow, is lost. In this view, maybe if Herod had killed him as a baby, it wouldn't have mattered. We still have the sacrifice. But if we understand it was his whole life that was cross-centered, his whole life that was a self-giving love from the incarnation to the ascension, that it all reveals God, it all defeats evil, it eradicates the condemnation of sin, all of his life reconciles us to God and restores creation. Well, then Jesus becomes a model, and this is the key difference. And this is the understanding the Anabaptists retained. So if you go through church history, it becomes clear that after the myth of redemptive violence was introduced into the church's thinking with Anselm of Canterbury, 1100 AD, there were five centuries of almost nonstop church-sanctioned violence. There were exceptions along the way, but the break came ultimately with the peace churches. As Francis Hebert describes it, Anabaptists insisted that those who are saved will follow the law of Christ written in their hearts and do the works of faith. This is the difference between the Anabaptists and the Reformers. The Reformers say, well, we have faith, but we don't do anything. They don't completely reject Anselmian satisfaction theory, but they don't think it was adequate. It was an external benefit bestowed by God regardless of human involvement, and they say that's inadequate. This is why Luther and Calvin begin to think of an Augustinian doctrine of predestination, because you, what people do doesn't matter. God just you know, says, you're in, sorry, arbitrarily chooses. But to the Anabaptist, atonement meant much more than this. And I'm quoting here from a series of early Anabaptist writers. Pilgrim Marpeck. It was more than a legal transaction in the heavenly court. He says it meant at one with God and referred to all the ways in which God and humans have been reconciled through the work of Christ. It points not only to Jesus' death, but to all the various phases of his activity on behalf of humanity, his birth, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. It also includes the idea that unless a person responds appropriately to the work of Christ, for that person the atonement is not efficacious. That is, you have to follow Jesus. The work of Christ includes the actualizing power of the Spirit, whereby people are able to appropriate Christ's saving work, but you have to appropriate it, his peace. And this comprehensive view of atonement, of course, is in contrast to both Catholic and Protestant traditions that have held a forensic doctrine, a purely legal doctrine 
in which all that is really necessary is a qualified, pure victim. To Anabaptists, Christ was not only redeemer, he was also an example. The gospel was not only the good news of salvation, but also a series of directives for the Christian on how to live, how to follow Christ, the example. And in following Christ, humanity could be brought back into the life of God. Balthazar Hubmeyer was an Anabaptist theologian, and his concept was a kind of synergistic understanding. He describes, he says, the soul is awakened. It's made healthy. It's given freedom to choose the good. It must therefore cooperate with God for the work of Christ to be effective. It must allow itself to be reconciled to God. Salvation, he stressed, does not take place without human cooperation. Leonard Scheimer, a Franciscan friar, he didn't last very long. He converted to the Anabaptist faith. He had been a friar for six years and they killed him after six months. But he put it this way, after God has revealed sin and brought sorrow under repentance, he places us naked and bare into the second birth and gives us his spirit and teaches us to love him. We grow. I mean, it's a simple concept. The participation in the life of God, they sometimes called it divinization. It does not mean that people become divine. It means that they participate in God's divinity. Pilgrim Marpeck emphasized Jesus' humiliation, suffering, and sacrifice that brings about liberation rather than simply a, emphasizing a legal status. He says his patient and innocent endurance of the cross has liberated people from their eternal burden. And so to the Anabaptists, divinization, a participation, so people through that have been freed from the effects of the fall and restored to a place where they too can do what Christ did. Remember the book, In His Steps? It's a, it's a fine example of this understanding that we can follow in the steps of Jesus. Dirk Philip writes, The believers become gods and children of the Most High through the new birth. The impartation and fellowship of the divine nature, righteousness, glory, purity, and eternal life, they will be taken up into glory even as God is in glory. And so the concept is of bringing humanity into communion with God. And this certainly fits the images in the Bible of the church as Christ's body and individual members as part of that body in Paul's theology. Christ's work in the world, it's not simply in the past, but it continues through us, right? Through the Holy Spirit, God brings about an ontological change. I think we can say that. That being grounded in God is ontologically different than not. And so there is an image of God that is lost and the believer is made to participate in the divine nature. That's my conclusion. That this is the critical distinction between Anabaptists and those groups who gave up the centrality of peace gave up the gospel, I think. For Anabaptists, atonement is not God's act of forensic justification, 
in which the sinner is declared righteous without actually being made so. We're made righteous. It's the transformation of the believer's life. A lived peace, we can say. Now this model is, of course, this is just the early church. This is the New Testament. And it's called Christus Victor. Why did Jesus die? To defeat sin, death, and the devil. He overcomes evil. And this is the motif in Anabaptist thinking. Peter Reidman spoke about sin as chains by which people are bound by the devil. He wrote that Christ had come to destroy the work of the devil. This is Christus Victor. This is in John. Jesus says, when I am lifted up, the prince of this world will be cast down. That he's going to destroy the power of death, hell, and the devil. He's overcome the devil and death and risen again. That the world, the flesh, the devil, the religious political structures of their time, of course, which were killing them. The Catholics were killing them. The Protestants were killing them. Everybody killed the Anabaptists. You understand that. We are a tradition that theologically participated in martyrdom from both Protestants and Catholics. This was the faith of David Lipscomb. This was the faith of Barton Stone. But I'm afraid it was largely lost. And so Christ is victor, Christus victor. Those in Christ can also then be victors. And Christ as example, as one we are to follow, rather than simply Christ as a payment to God. That seems to be a key factor in maintaining real world peace and trust in God. If we are to trust in God, we must trust and know that He is good, that He Himself is our peace. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.